Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're pleased to welcome along Kagan Corrie. Kagan is the host of the Evolving Prisons podcast and she also has recently begun a PhD researching the relationship between prison officer culture and well-being. I'm really glad to have you here today, Kagan. Welcome. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Hi, Kagan. Very nice to meet you. Thanks very much for coming along. I'm looking forward to a really interesting conversation with you. So being a prison officer is a job that there isn't a great deal of uh, public sympathy for. And there's a bit of a stereotype uh, well, sometimes there's a stereotype of a, a, a kind of racist person who sought out the position because they quite like enjoying the power that they get over marginalised people. What made you curious to know more about the people performing this role? So I became interested in prisons many years ago, back when I was doing an undergraduate degree. And as usual, it was just the prisoners that were referred to. And it wasn't until years later, I was about to start a master's degree in prison reform. And one of my supervisors actually said to me, have you thought about looking at the prison officer? And I'm embarrassed to say now at the time I thought, why on earth would I do that? And it, it just didn't, I didn't think about it. And I went away and the more I thought about it, I thought this is actually brilliant. And I actually felt like I really began to really care for them because in the literature, you know, they're, they're the forgotten service, the ghosts of penality. And there's just, there's a lot of people caring about prisoners and doing work for them. And I feel like there's not a lot of people even thinking about prison officers. And I was one of them. And since that time, I've just become really passionate about those people that are doing that job because a lot of us aren't even considering them at all. Yes, indeed. Thanks very much. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I love that turn of phrase, the ghosts of penality, uh, Kagan. I think that's quite powerful. And, and you're right, there is something about uh, so many officers do. I mean, both David and I have worked with so many staff who do such an amazing job of actually providing real genuine care to people who, who are in need and for whom there isn't much public sympathy. Yeah, I can't take credit for the ghosts of penality. I can't remember who said it. It's a... It's a researcher well known in this field, but it is so powerful, Naomi, that it's true. You know, it encapsulates them perfectly. Yes, it sounds a bit like a Cambridge Department of Criminology phrase. Um, anyway, so unlike um, many professions who were celebrated during the COVID period, I don't know if you remember, we were exhorted to go out and clap on the streets even. But um, there was very little acknowledgement or recognition that uh, prison officers were working in a highly contagious area of work. Why, why do you think there's so little acknowledgement or, or value given to the profession? Well, as you, you see, David, they weren't even considered during the pandemic. And I actually spoke to a prison officer myself who it made me so angry to hear this. They, they, some companies were giving out free coffee to frontline workers and police officers, nurses, etc., were granted this and the prison officer went to claim theirs and were actually rejected from getting it. And that 
actually makes me really angry because they are doing exactly the same as our other frontline workers. But I think the thing is, is because their work is hidden. Prison work is carried out behind walls, literally. So nobody knows what they're doing all day. Nobody can see what they're doing. And it's very rare that prison officers are hailed as heroes in the news where we, we can see pr uh, police officers in the news sometimes for saving people's lives. But the only time you see a prison officer in the news is when they have, you know, been sent to prison themselves for having an in inappropriate relationship or taking contraband into the prison. How often do you see a prison officer in the news for saving a prisoner's life? And even if they were in the news, I guarantee there would be a lot of people that would respond and say, sadly, why, why, is that, why are we celebrating this? Because there are so many people in society that believe that people in prison are monsters and that we should lock them up and throw away the key and that they aren't even worth, worthy of living. So I think that all contributes to why we just don't even consider prison officers when we think of frontline workers. Are you touching on the kind of contamination and shame, really, that by, you know, working with a group that's there's a lot of contempt for, that the prison officers somehow end up being caught in the shadow of that? I think so, because, you know, I, I speak to prison officers a lot because of my own podcast, and I'm very blessed that a lot of them actually reach out to me on Instagram and things. And one of them works um, with sex offenders. And they said that they don't even like to admit that they do that for a job because they think that society would think, well, why are you looking after these monsters? Why are you even helping them? So, yeah, I think there is a lot of shame for the job they do. I think we've often come up against the idea that our prisons are so bad, um, mainly or partly at any rate, because they are unseen. They're invisible to the general public and there's a kind of collusion really um, and the public and certainly the some of the media are quite happy for them to remain invisible in reality. We've already established, sorry go on Naomi. Well as, as, as you were both talking I was reminded of our conversation with Isle Press uh, who and it covered the work of, of prisons in his book Dirty Work and I think, you know, as you were talking about that, not wanting to admit what you've done, you know, that sense of the shame because it is work that's despised. It really reminded me of that conversation and how painful it can be doing a job that isn't appreciated or valued by society. What, what do you think uh, are the aspects of prison work, prison officer work, really, that should be highlighted? What should be foreground much more? Well, first of all, the fact that they go into this environment every day. I mean, you know, sometimes they are scared. I know of officers who are some, they have to brace themselves to enter that environment every day. So the fact that they get up and do it when nobody's celebrating them or clapping for them is, is a big thing in itself. But they, they really are helping transform lives where they can. A lot of prisons don't give them that opportunity. I mean, we're notoriously understaffed and overcrowded in our prisons. And sadly, a lot of prisons, the officers are just warehousing prisoners, locking them up, unlocking them, feeding them, etc. But it's in those little conversations where a prison officer and a prisoner come together and a prisoner actually feels comfortable enough to share something vulnerable with the prison officer. 
I'm reading a book just now by Alex South, who was a prison officer in the UK. And she talks of a situation where a prisoner was trying to go out onto the yard wearing sliders. And the rules are you have to wear trainers. And the officer was adamant, you're not going out in them. And it seemed like there was going to be a physical fight. And Alex got in between them and, you know, just calmed the situation. I think because she was a female, she was a good, uh, it brought the, the macho egos down. And later on, the prisoner said to her, do you think I was in the wrong earlier? And she said, yeah, I think you were that time. And the prisoner turned to the officer and said, I'm really sorry. And it's in those little things where they are making such a difference, but nobody knows about those miniature things that are happening that are actually so powerful. Yeah, and that's very well put. I mean, early, earlier on, just a minute or so ago, you said just going into that environment is a major thing. And I think that's sometimes uh, unrecognised and understated because when you go into that environment, something changes. I find it most discernible when I come out that suddenly I notice there's a difference in the air. Now, yeah, empirically, of course, I don't really know whether there's a difference in the air, although I suspect there may well be. I think if someone analysed the air inside those prison walls, it would have some marked differences to the air outside, even in the local car park. So, oh, I don't know what to say after that. I've run out of ideas. What are you going to do with your risk? Well, that's I think that's 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 such an interesting point though, because it's like different prisons do have different atmospheres anyway, and I think quite often, certainly when I was working in a prison, I used to feel really dirty when I left work and would go home and I have a shower um, as the first thing that I did to almost kind of like wash the prison prison off me, and you know there does seem to be you know increasingly we know more and more about the energy around us, don't we? And, and how people's energies are contagious. If you've got a lot, of, a lot of pain, carrying a lot of shame, you know, how do you protect yourself from that or prevent that seeping in through your own skin um, and becoming part of what you're you're living with? And I don't think you can. That's the sad thing, as you see, Naomi. I think energies are so contagious, and we can't get away from the fact that you can have the best prison in the world, but it's still a prison. So the energy is still going to be quite low vibrationally, and. I think it's very difficult to go into that environment and do the job you do and see everything you do and then leave at the end of your shift and contribute back into the society as we know it. And I think that's, that's why I'm so passionate about prison officer wellbeing because of course they change. I don't think it's possible to do that work and not change as a person in your entire life. So are you moving on a bit? What are you hoping to uncover in your research? So I'm, I'm looking at prison officer culture and well-being, and I want to look at at which point in the, the prison officer journey does their, does their well-being change as a result of the work they do, and how does culture influence that? Because we know that prison officer culture it is quite a macho culture, similar to the police, for example, where... We don't talk about the things we see, we get on with it, we, you know, um, showing emotions might be a sign of weakness. So I want to look at how is culture influencing and actually having a detrimental impact on officer wellbeing. And then how can we change that and what's the barrier to implementing that? Because I think it's, you know, what are the political barriers? It's very difficult to actually make change happen in the prison space. So I want to look at, well, what is stopping us making these changes and how can we improve their wellbeing? 
that sounds like a very laudable task and I hope you find out because um, that really is a cha challenge for every new governor who goes into a prison I, I, I think. So but you've touched upon um, culture another way perhaps of putting that is to talk about camaraderie because I was thinking that one of the things that occurs when an officer goes into the prison is that they immediately meet up with a band of colleagues who they know very well, who they've worked with probably for quite a long time, hopefully they've worked with for quite a long time, and who they trust. Um, and, and those, it seems to me, are the good things about uh, a culture. Um, but I suppose there is another side that perhaps you were touching on, which we might have referred to previously as a sort of canteen culture. Is, is that right? Yeah, and also I think, yes, they do have the camaraderie and they do trust each other and that's fantastic. But I also think that can also be a negative because in prison, people do change. They they might go in with the best of intentions. You know, we can, we can recruit officers using a values-based approach all we like, but when they go into the prison, who are they surrounding themselves with? Because we are, you know, there's that theory of habitus and field where you change to to be more like the people you are around. So what is the culture already like within there? But also the camaraderie, what are, if your colleague is doing something negative that you know they shouldn't be doing, because we can't get away from the fact that not all prison officers are heroes. There are the ones in there who are there for power and aren't doing the job properly. And are you calling out that bad behavior? Because if you are then expecting that officer to have your back the next time a prisoner tries to beat you up, you might then be quite reluctant to report bad practice that you're seeing. Yes, and again, that resonates very much with what Aeon Press was uh, telling us about some uh, American prisons. Um, there was actually great physical danger if you did anything to erode that, uh, that trust. Keegan, have you, have you looked at uh, prisons in different cultures? Yeah, so I did a master's degree looking at prison officer training and I compared um, Scotland and Norway. So I've, I've looked at the training of officers in Norway and through my podcast, I speak to um, prison personnel from different countries. So what kind of differences did you find in the, the training? So in, in Norway, they, their officers train for two years, um, whereas in Scotland, I was looking at residential prison officers, which are you have your operations officers and then your residential officers. And in Scotland, it's only 12 weeks training. Although they complete modules, um, Norway is much more intense and they also get a, a degree at the end of their, their studies and they can study for a bachelor's degree as well. Um, in Finland, it's, it's quite similar. They have 16 months of training. Uh, they also get a degree. They can actually get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Whereas in Scotland, they don't get any kind of qualification right now, unfortunately, like a diploma, for example. Um, but one noticeable thing was that in Scotland, there is a massive drugs problem just in the country itself. But in, in prisons, there is a massive drugs problem. And a lot of the officers I interviewed in my research said that they, they need help with the drugs. They, they need proper training on it. <clears throat> Sorry. And they don't actually get any training. Whereas in Norway, they don't really have a problem with drugs in their prison, but they have a full module on substance misuse in prison in their, tra in their training program, which 
I think is horrendous. Scotland needs that, Norway doesn't, but Norway has it and Scotland doesn't. Kagan, can you tell us a bit about your podcast and how and why you got started with this theme of evolving prisons? Yeah, so it actually came from prison officers. They, they didn't mention the podcast, but when I was doing my research, they said that they want more people to know about them, about the work they do. And I feel like in life, I, I like to, to root for those who don't have a voice. And with prison officers, of course they have a voice, but when they do the job they do, they're, they're restricted by what they can actually come out and tell the public. And I want to be that voice for them where they feel like they can confide in me and then I do what I can to spread awareness in society. And I feel like there are podcasts out there that, that talk about prison. There are shows out there that talk about prison, but some of them can really glamorize the crime. And I, I'm not about that at all. I'm, I'm about looking at rehabilitation. And so, you know, I interview some ex-prisoners because I want to show the human behind the crime and the human behind the uniform. So I just thought the podcast would be a nice way of getting officers' stories and governor's stories and ex-prisoner stories out into society. You're right. I think it's so badly needed. And I think, you know, when we look at other, I mean, we've been shortlisted for an award on, on Monday in a true crime podcast. And I doubt we'll win because, uh, you know, we don't feature crime in the same way that it's very, you know, a lot of our conversations are very relevant to crime, but we're not talking about crime in the, in the way that the public seems to want to have it served up. We're much more interested in the nuances of what makes for a good journey or a bad journey so it's you know for us it's i think it's really delightful to hear about your podcast and see that you're having conversations that touch more on the the real life of of those who live and work there but we you just spoke a moment ago about the differences in training but i wondered about the differences in the actual role across culture and does that training different training say something about the role that's following for the staff that that pursue the training yeah. So first of all, congratulations on the, the um, nomination. That's fantastic because, as you say, I think the public do often like the glamorizations of the crime. So I think it's so important that, you know, you're being recognized for doing what you do because this side of it is, is even more important, I would argue. So that's brilliant. Um, but with the role, I think the role of the prison officer around the world is the same. We have the security and rehabilitation. But how it's executed is different, I think. So, and even across different prisons in the same country. So I w had the, the privilege to visit a, a community custody unit for women recently. It's one of the first ones in the UK. And just seeing how close the, the prison officers and prisoners could work together. So they, they do fitness classes uh, that's taken by a prison officer, but other prison officers actually get involved and do the fitness class with them. And simple things like that, I think, are really important. And in some other prisons, prison officers will eat their meals with prisoners. But when we're in a prison where it's overcrowded, in some prisons, staff don't even know the names of the prisoners, never mind actually building a relationship with them because they're just warehousing prisoners. Um, but in Norway, I mean, most of your listeners will know this, I'm sure, because it's a very common concept, but they have the principle of normality where prisons replicate outside life as much as possible. And they use dynamic security where they rely on relationships to you know, prevent crime rather than the static cameras, etc. And I spoke to prison officers before where at night they'll sit and play the guitar on the floor with prisoners. And 
I told that to a British prison officer and their initial thoughts were, but what happens if a prisoner takes that opportunity to assault the prison officer? And it's just different. I just feel like it is quite different. Although the rules the same, it is just executed in, in quite a different way. I think that's quite interesting. There's always that fear of the worst case, most possible case scenario, isn't there? And I think, you know, having worked in a unit where there was there was quite a lot of reciprocal trust, prisoners didn't take advantage of that. You know, they seemed to recognise that they were being, being given some precious opportunities at times and would would really make the most of it. But not, you know, not to lose hope. One of the guests we interviewed was a former governor from the Dutch penal system and obviously the Dutch prison system's got similarly got quite a positive reputation for doing things that are a little bit more um, bring more of the humanity to the situation perhaps and the prison governor told us that actually it wasn't that many years ago that their prison system was very similar to the British prison system so you know and could be very you know austere and and harsh I think it's quite interesting when we have conversations with people from other countries and hear what the what the possibilities are same with Norway. I mean, back in the 1980s, Norway's had a massive problem with riots in the prison and prison officers weren't trained well and they, they had to change the culture. Um, there's a, a man over there who he's now a senior advisor to the Norwegian Correctional um, Service, but he was a prison governor, Ari Hoydal. And I went to visit him last year at Holden Prison where he was the governor and he was governor of Oslo prison back when those changes were taking place. And he said it was difficult. He had to completely transform the culture, but he did it. So I feel like people are quick to say, oh, but Norway's a wealthy state and they're nothing like us. But they were in the 80s. They had the problems we had. So as you say, we, we can we can make a difference, I think. And when I visited him, I noticed a big difference where we were walking around the prison and it's a, it was very open where prisoners would walk up to us and shake Ari's hand and we'd just have a chat. I think um, there must have been five or six occasions where I was just standing talking to a prisoner. Whereas I went to visit a, a British prison not too long ago and I never spoke to a single prisoner and nobody, they, the officer I was with never stopped to speak to prisoners. It was just, we're walking through. And my thoughts were just, it was what you touched on earlier, where there's almost, there's more of a worry of the worst case scenario. Whereas in Norway, in that prison, it didn't seem like that. But it is possible, of course, to change those environments. But it does take, uh, one, the determination, two, planning, and to some extent, additional resources. Because the enabling environments and the pipes, the psychologically informed prison environments in the British, the UK prison estate, are living proof. And that's to say nothing of the highly resourced places like... Uh, Whitemore, um, where, where Naomi used to work, or the prison TCs that I often visit. Yeah, so moving, moving on, Kagan, um, we, one of our previous guests is Rob Hosking, who's a former police officer, and you've started a magazine with Rob uh, called The Rise of Happiness. What are you hoping to do with this magazine? So we just want to improve the, the narrative around well-being in society. So I'm really passionate about people creating a life that makes them happy rather than one that looks good on paper. So we want to just share people's stories of, you know, making courageous decisions to 
go move to a different country and or leave a job that didn't make them happy and do a job that you know really actually brings them a lot of fulfillment and passion so we just wanted to get that out into society it's it's stories that's it's the same with my podcast i just love stories people can relate to stories so it's just people sharing theirs so that people can see what's really possible for them that the life path they're on if it doesn't make them happy there is a way to create a, a better life for themselves and health is one of my core values so we have expert tips and research on on uh, different elements of our health and we started it because it was a magazine we wanted for ourselves really there's a lot of well-being magazines out there but none that really ticked the box of what we wanted so we just decided to create it for ourselves thank you and you're, you're obviously really passionate about well-being and doing your best to promote reflection on this and really trying to make a positive contribution to society's culture around well-being what got you so passionate about this theme? So for me, when I was younger, I had this dream of moving to Australia and working in the criminal justice system and surfing on my days off. And, you know, I would I would live for that. To me, that was when utopia was going to come and that was just going to be incredible. And I was going to be eternally happy and how naive I was. And I moved to Australia six years ago and I worked for the Office of Public Prosecution in their Specialist Sex Offences Unit. And I was surfing on the weekend and I was absolutely miserable. I just felt empty and it really, it made me feel like there was something wrong with me and that I couldn't feel joy and happiness. And then I just did a lot of internal reflection, looking at my core values and the life I'd created for myself wasn't actually in alignment with my core values. So then I went back to the drawing boards and now have created a life that actually aligns with my values. And I'm, I'm so happy. I'm not happy all the time. I mean, we're human. We have the full range of emotions, but I'm fulfilled and that's the main thing. So that's where my passion for well-being has come because I want to encourage other people. I feel like people are quick to, to think, oh, that's a good job and, oh, it's time to get married. It's time to have a nice car and a nice house and it might not make them happy. So I just want to encourage them to actually create a life that truly makes them feel fulfilled. Can we ask what your core values are, Keegan? Yeah, of course. Um, so, so mine are connection, health, freedom and growth. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you, Kagan. And have you discovered anything interesting and new through this endeavour that would be good for to share with our, our listeners? I think just it maybe sounds a bit a bit cliched, but fame and money aren't going to bring you happiness. I feel like we're very quick to idolise people in the public eye. So our magazine, sorry, just for a bit of context as well as individuals and everyday people sharing their stories. We also have multiple people in the public eye sharing their stories. So we've had um, professional footballers, um, TV people on TV, um, actresses, actors, etc. in the magazine. And it's just to show that happiness isn't over there somewhere in the next job or the next promotion or it's it's here where you are. And no matter how much money you have, how much success you have in life, if you don't deal with the the things that are going on in your head, you'll never be happy. And we had one person, Leon Logothetis, who he is the host of the, the TV show, The Kindness Diaries, where he travels around the, the world relying on the kindness of strangers. And I remember thinking, wow, his life looks brilliant. This was years ago. And then he was in the magazine and I listened to him on a podcast after he was in our magazine where while he was filming that show, he has PTSD and he had a night terror so bad one night that he was sleeping on a boat one night and he woke up in the ocean. He'd somehow made it into the ocean in the pitch black. 
And, you know, he, he struggles with his PTSD. And I just think it's so powerful to remember that it does not matter what you have in life. You need to make sure that you are dealing with whatever is in your head. Otherwise, nothing will ever make you happy. Thank you. Very powerfully put, uh, Kagan. And um, we usually ask people at the end just to sum up how they look after their own well-being. And you've kind of begun to tell us that already, I, th I think, with those powerful statements you, you just made. So, but go over it again. What do you do? Like, you can't be surfing now because it's the water's too cold. What do you do to keep yourself buoyed up? So for me, every day has to be movement. I'm one of those people where I need to move my body regularly. Otherwise, I just feel a bit frustrated. So making sure I exercise every single day in some form or another. It's not always vigorous exercise, but just moving my body in every way and making sure that first thing in the morning I do something for myself. So it could just be reading a book for 10 minutes. It could just be meditating, going for a quick walk, just doing something for myself that, that fills my cup before I'm giving myself to the projects that I'm working on. So I'm pretty sure you're not the sort of person who tells other people what to do. Um, but I suspect within that you've given us some clear hints about what could be helpful to anyone, finding something that's special to oneself, taking time for oneself, having some exercise, getting some fresh air. What have I missed out from that? Living in values. Yeah, indeed. And it's not always easy. I get it. You know, people, I'm in a privileged position where I don't have children and things. I appreciate not everybody has the same time, time that I do, but I believe, I truly believe that we all have 10 minutes in a day, you know, instead of taking those 10 minutes to scroll social media where you think that that might make you feel good because you're zoning out, it's filling your head with nonsense. Take those 10 minutes to just have a cup of tea, walk around the block, just do something. And it is only 10 minutes, but those 10 minutes are really powerful for how they impact the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Kevin. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Great to meet you. No, oh, thank you both for having me.